here's where we are. Last week, we uh, rolled through Exodus 1, 2, and 3. What did we learn? We learned that uh, there was this baby. He was put in the reeds. He was an Israelite baby. The Israelites are uh, enslaved by uh, the people of Egypt. And this baby, defying the law that all firstborn uh, male babies of the, the sons of Israel had to be put to death, he was saved and put into the river. Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby, calls him Moses, Moshe, drawn out one. He's brought into the Pharaoh's castle, into his kingdom, into his home, and he's raised as if he were an Egyptian. So he's this Israelite who's brought in and raised as one of the favored ones. He sees a, a, something going wrong in the desert as he's out surveying the people working. He kills a man. And then when he's found out, he runs. He spends 40 years in Midian in hiding, which is where he encounters a burning bush and God's anointing on his life that he is going to then go back and lead God's people out of slavery and into the promised land. And that's where we pick it up today. I'm really excited about today. I have to be honest and just confess this. Growing up, I thought the Bible was sort of this dry series of really thin pages, you know? Really thin pages, lots of disconnected stories. Some have a moral value, some I don't really understand. It never really connected for me. This is one of those weeks where I feel like it connects so beautifully, where the first page of your Bible connects to this story that we're reading, connects to the passion and crucifixion of Christ, and it all comes together. And so this is one of those weeks where the Bible for me is like really fun. And if you had told me 15 years ago, I'd be standing in front of a group of people saying, the Bible is so much fun, I'd have made fun of me. And yet my hope is that you will catch today what is so amazing and astounding about the way the scripture is woven together. We're going to be uh, doing a ton, so we're going to race a little bit. We're going to start in Exodus 5, okay? In Exodus 4, God says to Moses, I see your suffering and I will deliver you. In Exodus 5, verse 1, it says, And afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. The question that Pharaoh asks is, Moses and Aaron come to do what God has told them to do. Go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. They do that. They're obedient. And Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Pharaoh's question is our question in that sense. Disobedience always questions authority. We don't see it that way. Disobedience just seems like, you know, a random act of malice or something. But disobedience always questions authority. Because if we know right and wrong, in order to do wrong, we have to question the source of right. We say, but, but why? Why would I do that? This is my, my kids answer this, right? Well, go brush your teeth. Why? Why? It isn't about why, right? My child is not asking me, can you explain to me the, like, physics behind um, friction and fluoride against... They don't, they don't care. It's not about that. What, what my daughter is saying to me when she says, why do I have to brush my teeth? Or, Dad, can I please not brush my teeth? Is I'm not totally convinced I trust you when you say I should brush my teeth. It, it, it's questioning authority, not questioning an action. And so almost all the time, obedience is not about uh, a behavioral issue. It's about an authority issue. And so Pharaoh says, who's the Lord that I should obey him? He's directly questioning authority. And so what he does is he refuses to uh, let the people go. He actually increases their labor, increases their affliction. And so then what we have for the rest of today is that God will answer the question for Pharaoh. 
When Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey, obey him? God says, let me show you. And his response will be comprehensive. His response will be definitive. And God will show himself to be a unique jo- uh, judge, a discerning judge, and a saving judge. And this is where we get the plagues. Some people have heard of the plagues. You don't have to be in church to know that there was some sort of biblical plague thing. There's 10 of them. We're going to kind of roll through them pretty quickly, but I think something interesting is going to happen. In chapter 6, God reiterates his promise to the people. He says, I see your affliction. I keep my promises. And then in chapter 7, Moses kicks the party off. 717, it says, thus says the Lord. And Moses is talking. Moses is repeating what God has told him to say. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile River. And with the staff that is in my hand, it will be turned to blood. Moses does what the Lord tells him to do. He says, he goes to Pharaoh and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strike the river with my staff and it will be turned to blood. What God is saying is, I am utterly unique. They're none like me. They were a pluralistic society. The, the Egyptian world was a pluralistic society, a lot like ours. Plenty of gods, plenty of things to worship, plenty of idols, plenty to do, plenty to see. And the idea that there was one unique God was completely foreign and, and laughable to the Egyptian culture, a little like ours. When you stand up on a street corner and say, I believe that there's one true God and the rest fall by the wayside, you're intolerant. The same thing in Egypt. Pluralistic society, there are gods everywhere. And what God is saying in response to the question of who is the Lord that I should obey him, God is saying, I am God in a sea of gods. 7 verse 20. So Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. He lifted up the staff and he struck the water that was in the Nile. And in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish that were in the Nile died and the Nile became foul so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile, and the blood was through all the land of Egypt. So the first plague. The Nile has been ruined. It's been fouled. That's the important part. It's fouled. There are, uh, you can go online and get lost in a rabbit trail of, is there a natural explanation? Could God have used nature for this? Could it be red tide? The answer to all those things is, sure, could be. We don't know. What we know is the Nile was fouled. And this affects everyone, right? Because the Nile is kind of the heartbeat of this entire region. And so, People are affected. They cannot drink it. Crops are affected. You cannot use it for irrigation. Livestock is affected because they are also reliant on it. And so what you'll see in the plagues is the first domino of the Nile being fouled tips every following domino. Second plague. Frogs emerge. Frogs. There's this rain of frogs everywhere. Amphibians like you've never seen before. The Nile is ruined. Where would frogs live? They probably live in around the Nile. But if the Nile is ruined, the frogs are everywhere. The frogs begin to overtake things. Not only that, you have dead fish everywhere because of the Nile being fouled. And so what happens next is the third plague, gnats. Gnats begin to swarm. What would you expect to happen if there were millions of dead fish laying on a riverbank? What God is doing is slowly destroying the ecosystem that he built. The whole system begins to break down. In Exodus 8 and 19, the magicians and sorcerers that Pharaoh... um, employed go to him and say look this is the finger of god up until then they had been tasked with trying to repeat what god was doing can you make this happen okay this this god did this but can you do it and pharaoh's confidence was that as long as his sorcerers and his magicians could continue to do what god was doing he didn't have to pay any heed to this god and they come to exodus 8 19 and the magicians say this is the very finger of god and the actual literal would be it's the pinky finger of god 
They go to Pharaoh, they say, we can't do what he's doing. This is like the pinky finger of God in action, which is to say this is so incredibly powerful, and yet we only have a glimpse. Plague number four, the flies. The flies begin to take over the land, and yet here's where God says, I'm not only unique, but I'm discerning. Because if you read the text, it says the flies came on the people of Egypt, but, but not on God's people. And so some were afflicted, but some were held safe. And so this unique God who's commanding nature is also showing himself to be discerning. I can send and command nature just how I want. The later plagues are then all direct assaults on the gods of the day. We said it's a pluralistic society. Every single plague after is a direct assault on the gods of Egypt. And so the fifth plague is the the livestock are, are struck down, the cattle. Well, the Egyptian gods Hathor and Apis were depicted as cattle. And so this is a a direct assault on these gods. The sixth plague is the plague of boils on the skin. They can't get rid of them. They cannot heal them. This is an assault on the Egyptian gods Sunu and Isis, the the gods of health and disease. And before the seventh plague, God says, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. Plague seven and eight come, hail and then locusts that attack the, the, the sky god, Newt, the crop fertility god, Osiris, the storm god, Set. They're all shown to be lesser than this other god, the God of Moses, the God of Aaron, the God of the people of Israel. What is happening? You're seeing a selective undoing of creation. That the, the God of the Bible is saying, I control all of it. And so there's this undoing of creation and a selective return to chaos. The fabric of life itself is being uh, unraveled before the people, and it only intensifies the plague nine. Plague nine, darkness returns to the earth. The sun is blotted out and the whole land goes dark. What we're actually seeing is the undoing of Genesis one. Let there be light. God says, I control light. And this is a direct assault on the Egyptian god of Ray, who represented the sun and whose symbol was uh, synonymous with Pharaoh himself. And so when the sun is blotted out, Pharaoh takes a personal, terrifying cue here. That this is what's next. This is what's next. As the the world begins to unravel and Pharaoh can't keep up, he begins to see something is happening. And anybody, if you were looking and you read Genesis 1, you see something happening along with it. God says, let there be light and let there be water, and let there be vegetation, and the sun, and the fish, and the birds, and the livestock, and then man. Let there be light, I will blot it out. Let there be water, I will foul it. Let there be vegetation, I will break it. Let there be fish, I will kill them. Let there be livestock, they will drop. Let there be man. Tenth plague. The taking of life itself. God says the tenth plague will be the firstborn in all of Egypt. Both man and cattle will be struck down. Isn't this what sin does? Isn't this what sin does? Sin destroys the ecosystem of our souls. It's the same domino effect. It's the same hardening of heart. Little sin, bigger sin, life in chaos. Small disobedience, bigger disobedience, life in chaos. They're compounding ills compounding ills and natural forces and as they grow sin begins to expose our gods and our idols and it exposes them as insufficient sin exposes our gods and our idols and then eventually 
Though it may feel good at first, though it may seem right at first, though it may be justifiable at first, eventually sin exposes itself as being insufficient. The plagues are devastating. And they're actually sent to save God's people. Chapter 12. Passover 12, 1 through 7. Actually start in verse 2. It said, the Lord said, verse 1, the Lord uh, said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, verse 2, this month, this month, shall be the beginning of months for you. It's to be the first month of the year for you. So what we see there is God is reorienting the calendar of his people. When do you celebrate? New Year's. We shoot off fireworks. We remember all the great stuff from the previous year. We look forward to the great stuff of the next year. And God is reorienting the calendar of his people and saying, from now on, what I'm about to do, you're gonna, that's going to be the first day. You're, you're going to start here because the first thing I want you to do in the year is begin to remember the greatness that I'm about to do. He says, speak to the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th of this month, they are to take each one a, a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. If the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbors nearest him will uh, take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. So divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep, from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. And then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood. And they put it on the two doorposts of the lintel of the house in which they eat. For I will go through, in verse 12, the land of Egypt on that night. And I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all of the gods, see, against all of the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a sign for you on your houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So let's recap. God says, take an unblemished lamb, sacrifice it, and take the blood and put it on the doorpost. And so when this plague is enacted, and God was true to his word, he passed over the homes of which there was blood on the doorpost. He knew his people by this. As the firstborn in Egypt began to drop, Pharaoh relents. Pharaoh says, go, go, get your people out, go, you're free. And we'll see next week that he reconsiders this. But he says, go. And we don't want to miss this, right? God frees his people. God makes his people holy. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart. So even early in the scripture, as you look at, at who's doing the action, who's responsible for the goodness, you see God, God frees his people. God sets them apart. God is the one with the action. And the people simply respond. Future generations of Jews would talk about this because God had set this up. Hey, on the 14th day, you're going to do this thing. We're going to set this, this meal. We're going to have this whole thing set up. And you're going to remember what I did for you at the Passover. And so every year, there was an annual Passover meal. There was a moment where everybody sat down on this 14th day and they said, we remember. They talk about the event. It was passed down generationally, even today. They will celebrate Passover. They will sit with their unleavened bread. And they'll remember the bread that, that was given to them while they were in the wilderness. 
freed from slavery, they'll remember with this bread and go, God, the bread of our affliction, I remember. And they'll take the, the cup, the cup of their suffering, we remember. They'll take lamb, the sacrificed lamb, and they'll eat it and they say, we remember when you saved us. We remember when you freed us. We remember that you're a God who can do anything. Jewish Passover is not the telling of a Bible story. It is the recalling and the sharing of a living history of a people rescued by an unmatched God. Which is radically different than the way we look at it. We look at it as a a Bible story and a people connected to a Bible story. Imagine if there was a story that was in your family. That had been passed down and through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the telling of it was the same. And so you have the same story that your grandmother, whose grandmother's grandmother, whose grandmother's grandmother, all the way back had. That's not a story out of a book. That's a story from real life. That's a living history passed down, and that's the point of the Passover, as it's observed now. 1,300 years later, Jesus observes it with his friends. Luke 22. We'll go to the upper room. 22 verse 7, it says, Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus being a good Jew, Jesus sent Peter and John, and he said, go and prepare the Passover for us so we may eat it. And they said to him, where do you want us to prepare it, Jesus? And he said to them, when you've entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Slight aside, that would be really, a really strange sight. Men didn't carry water, women carried water. So if you see a man carrying water, that's the one. It says, follow him into his house that he enters, and You shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and they found everything just as he had told them. They prepared the Passover and when the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some of the bread and given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to me. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and after he'd eaten, he, he said, this is the cup poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. And those in the upper room with him had to be really confused. Because this is the annual rite of Passover. This is is scripted. I mean, we know how this is supposed to go. And they would be saying, this is not the Passover we know. Passover was a rite of centuries. There was a common observance. They remember Egypt. And when God set them free, and what Jesus says is, remember me. Through verse 17, it's almost the same as centuries past. Jesus is sitting in the the place of the presider, the head of the table, we would say today. And the presider was the one who would oversee the Passover meal, who would would begin and and go through the rites and the, the, uh, the different traditions. Jesus takes this position. And the youngest at the table also had a job, still does today. If you go to a Passover with the Jewish family, the youngest in the room will ask the same question every year. Why is tonight different from all the other nights? Why is the night different from all the other nights? It was a teaching moment. And so the youngest in the room has a job. Their job is to start the whole thing off and go, why is tonight different from all other nights? 
And the presider takes them from there, and they begin to roll through this beautiful history of their people. They read Deuteronomy 26, and it says, Our ancestors were slaves. God looked on their affliction and their suffering. They would read Deuteronomy 16 that would say, The bread of affliction they ate in the wilderness. Passover, the the observation of it explains their suffering, explains their liberation, it explains how God provides. It's a meal that looks back at the past. It builds reverence. Next week we'll be eating Easter lunch or Easter dinner. I don't know how you do it. Most of our gatherings, if you have extended family, somebody brings a dish that no one knows why they bring that dish. Like grandma's pea salad, right? And you're like, there's peas, and I think there's bacon, and there's a lot of mayonnaise. I don't know what's going on in this pea salad. But every year, one of the aunts or somebody's cousin or somebody's bringing pea salad. And you notice when you look around the, the, the plates at lunchtime, everybody's got like, you know, a quarter teaspoon of pea salad on their plate. Because you don't want to be rude. Because Aunt Peggy made the pea salad, so let's not offend her. And, oh, I love this pea salad. And the question is, why is there pea salad? Nobody's begging for that. Give me more ham, right? Okay. Well, the answer is that when great-great-grandmother, whoever, passed away, somebody one year said, you know what? She made that pea salad. I'm going to make that this year. We'll remember her. And the next year, somebody makes it again saying, hey, we're going to remember her. And, and over time, it's almost forgotten why we made it in the first place, but it, we're making it because it's this cherished family recipe. And it's not about the recipe. It's about the cherished family. And so that pea salad ends up on the table every year. And for those who remember great-great-grandma, there's a nod of acknowledgement. There's maybe a story, hey, remember when we were little and we were... That still happens. I make cucumber and tomato salad. My wife does not love the cucumber and tomato salad. But I make it because my great-grandmother made it. And on the east side of San Antonio, right behind the Handy Andy grocery store, gunshots ringing out all over the neighborhood, a really great place, no air conditioning in South Texas, we would sit in her backyard and she would fill up wash tubs with water and say, if you get hot, you can sit. And by about the time lunch came, when everybody was melting, she would come over and she would give you, from her garden, cucumber and tomato salad. A little bit of mayonnaise, a whole lot of vinegar, some salt and pepper, here you go. That was lunch. And for me, that's meaningful. And so I make it, and I make it because I like it, but I like it because of her. And so it continues to show up on our dinner table, and I don't even remember why when I do it. I just do it. Next week, see. Look at your table and see what's there. And if nothing's there that's remembering something from the past, maybe start that. But that's what meals do so often. Meals keep alive a history. Meals keep alive a past. They build a reverence for things that have gone before us. There were two shocks at this meal table at Jesus. It was Jesus sat. Two major shocks. Jesus says, the meal we're eating tonight does not have reference to the past, but is entirely about the future. He holds up the bread and he says, not. This is the bread of our ancestors' affliction. He says, this is the bread of my affliction. And I'll only eat it again in the kingdom. Jesus is saying, this is not about the bread in the wilderness. This is not about manna from heaven. This is my body that will enter true wilderness of separation from the Father. This is what this represents. Is I will enter wilderness that our people have never known. This is the bread of my affliction. It will be broken for you. Now eat and remember. He takes the cup and he says, this is not the cup of past suffering. 
This is the blood of the lamb that would poured out for all so that sins may be forgiven. This is the cup of a new covenant. And the disciples have to be reeling. Their minds are just melting. As they begin to go back and replay, wait a minute, wait a minute, what is he saying? I mean, we knew he was great, but is it, could he be? They're not all convinced at this moment that they are following the Messiah, a Messiah, maybe the Messiah. We're waiting to find out. He takes the cup, he takes the bread, but there's something missing from the Passover table. Passover meal has three things. Jesus only mentions two. The Passover meal, we said it has unleavened bread. It has the four cups and the lamb. There's no lamb in the upper room. To which the disciples might be saying, what kind of Passover meal is this? Jesus, there's no lamb. Jesus, there's no lamb on the table. To which the presider leans back and says, because the lamb is at the table with you tonight. Jesus is saying, I am the lamb, I'm the ultimate sacrifice, and the blood of this lamb covers the doorpost of your life and your eternity, and you are truly, ultimately saved by me. You will be finally free. I am the true and better Passover. And the disciples are blown. And their minds begin to reel, and they flash back to the things they've seen, even in recent days. The Sunday before when Jesus says, go into town and find me this colt, you'll you'll find him tied here, bring me this donkey. Fulfilling a messianic prophecy of Zechariah, they start to remember, wait a minute. That whole thing when the people were welcoming Jesus into town as king, when they had their palm branches and they were waving them in the air, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, and then they would lay them at his feet. Hosanna, God save us. That was reminiscent of the festival of the booths of Sukkot when they would take their palm branches and they would shake them and and sing. They'd sing Psalm 118 to God. Send your rain is what they're asking. Save us with your rain. You have your palm branches? Would you take them out? Would everybody shake them at once? Just shake them in the air. That sound like the pitter-patter of rain to you? Imagine thousands or tens of thousands of Jews gathering in the center of the city, shaking their palm branches all at once, saying, Hosanna, God save us, send your rain, and that noise filling the town. And then God would send rain and the people would eat. And the disciples have to be thinking, wait, so when you were coming in, as you were riding into town, this triumphal entry just a few days ago, Jesus, and they were waving their palm branches and shouting Hosanna, and they laid them down, what was that saying? Instead of waving them for rain and saying, save us, they were laying them down and saying, save us. You are saving us. Jesus, were they anointing you king? You're the king. We should have seen it. I know you've said some weird stuff, and I know we didn't quite get it, but this is starting to all make sense now. It's all coming together. And so here is Jesus saying, I'm not, I'm not the king that's going to save you by force. Because many were still hoping he was going to become a political king or a military king or an overthrowing king. And in the upper room, Jesus breaks the bread and he drinks the wine and he says, I'm a whole other kind of king, not by force, but by laying my life down by pure sacrifice on your behalf. I will be the ultimate Passover. I will be the ultimate lamb. I will be the final fulfillment. He is Messiah, Jesus. 
He's the one we've been waiting for. And the weight of this must have been astounding in that room. The weight of this must have been unbearable in that room. Judas, who has already sold out Jesus to the authorities, gets up and runs. The rest head to Gethsemane to pray. This is the Passover. This is eternal God. This is the author of creation. This is designer of the plagues coming down and becoming personal. This is Jesus weaving together history and eternity, weaving together sacrifice and salvation, weaving together remembrance and redemption. And so we remember. This is a Sunday when we can come and we remember that we hold the palm branch. And it isn't just a tradition because this is what we're supposed to do on the Christian calendar. It's a remembrance that where once people had to shout to the heavens to please send a Savior, send rain, sustain us, Lord. That there was a day when people laid them down and said, that's the one, and you've done it. And so we remember, because we are redeemed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are beyond comprehension to me. How you've woven together the beauty of this story. Creation and the undoing of creation. Father, slavery and freedom, prophecies fulfilled, a suffering Savior. God, I pray that this would be a week where we would be deep in remembrance, where we, like the disciples, would be in an upper room of sorts, where we would be attentive to you, King Jesus, where we would be uh, listening to your words, where we would be remembering that it's not our good works that save us, it is not our valor, our integrity. It's not our reputation. Father, it is your willingness to intervene and invade in our lives to set us free. So, Father, as we remember today, I pray that we would do so with glad hearts, with full hearts, aware of the fact that you sent your Son to create new life in us. So may we live that life for all to see. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to continue.